Hello everyone and welcome to the SciComm Toolkit podcast. This is the show for researchers and science communicators to get all the tools they need to communicate their science with confidence. I'm Soph and I will be your host today and for the rest of the podcast. So that was a little bit of a weird thing to say. But I am a science communicator and I have a real passion for sharing science stories with the world. So I've been doing a lot of thinking recently about what I actually want from my sitcom career. And I've been thinking at ways to create different video content to improve not just my editing and filming skills, but also my presenting to camera confidence too. And don't worry, I am already eyeing up some amazing guests to cover this on the podcast in future episodes as well. But I have been thinking about um, TikToks and Reels and YouTube videos. And for those of you who know me a little more, you may be surprised to hear that I have a YouTube channel. But don't get too excited though, as there are only two public videos on there currently. Over the weekend, I was brainstorming some different video ideas for a relaunch of the channel, if you can even call it a relaunch. As I was doing that, I rewatched the very first two camera video that I did. Now, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't fantastic either. I was looking down at the camera, which isn't a completely flattering angle for me. I remember when I was recording that, I was had this whole balancing tower of things on top of my bed to try and get that height as I didn't have a tripod at the time. But the stark thing from rewatching that video was that I didn't sound like me. It sounded really odd as if someone else's voice was coming out of my mouth as I was moving my lips. It did however help me notice how much I've improved Since I did that video in 2018 at talking to camera, I am far from perfect. I am definitely not a professional, but I feel a lot more comfortable now. And I think that is almost definitely down to using Instagram stories. So if you are looking to improve your speaking confidence or camera confidence, my advice right now would be to hop on Instagram stories. I am more than aware that it is cringe at first, but trust me, you will become more used to it and it will become more natural as you get more confident. So why am I talking about this? Well, today we are talking about science filmmaking, slightly different to the vlog and other short form videos that I've been chatting about already, but a lot of the processes are the same. Today we're talking to Dr. George Chan, who is a science filmmaker and videographer. With a background in science, he studied zoology and then he did a PhD in evolutionary biology. He then moved to be a producer and director for the BBC. He has worked as an independent filmmaker, creating a heap of different TV shows and now has his own company, Blue Fire Films, that creates science and research videos as well as doing filmmaking training as well. I went to one of George's courses back in 2019 now, I think, and I found it so, so valuable. I'm just then a little bit bitter that 
the pandemic pressed pause on me being able to actually put all those skills into practice and improve and improve on them. Today we are talking to him about science filmmaking as a career, but also some tips on how you can get started and do this too. We talk about his career in TV and now as an independent. We talk about the stages of video production, working with Sir David Attenborough, some top tips for interviewing for films, how you can let go of those shots that you spent forever trying to capture, but then they don't really fit when you're editing, and also the best classroom for growing as a filmmaker. So I hope you are excited. I'm excited to share it with you. So let's get straight to it. I am thrilled to introduce you to Dr. George Chan. I have a list of questions that I would love to ask you that is probably about as long as my arm. So I will stop rambling and get to it. So I know you have like a a scientist background. You did a PhD in evolutionary biology, right? That's right. Um, so then how, how did you make that move from PhD into filmmaking? What, what made you want to do that? I think there are two things. I think the first thing is that I never, during doing a PhD made me realize that I wasn't going to be a natural academic. And I had friends and colleagues who were natural academics. And I felt like I wasn't in the same ballpark as they were. But I think also, I always loved doing more creative things and science can be creative, but not in the same way as, for example, visual arts, painting or drawing or Mm -hmm. filmmaking or photography, that sort of thing. So um, I think I was always missing that side of things. And then I had uh, a friend who went into wildlife filmmaking while I was doing my PhD. And I just thought he was having the best time and I wanted to do that too. Yeah, I've always been in awe of everyone who does these wildlife filming and like camping out for days at a time just to get that one magical shot. Um, so why why then were you interested in filmmaking? Out of all of the things you could have done, what was it about science videos that got you hooked? Making documentaries for television is amazing fun and it's really rewarding and you learn a lot. Um, television is quite prescriptive and it can be a bit superficial when it comes to how much information you can get across. So I think what I really like about making science films and films about research is that you actually get to delve deeper into a subject um, and you don't have to be so superficial. Um, And I find that in many ways more rewarding than what you can do with television. And what would you say was your favourite TV show to work on? I think it's difficult to say what which TV program I enjoyed most because each different project is rewarding in a different way. Mm-hmm. So making Wild China was incredible because of the places we got to go to, um, breaking new ground. No one had made anything like that before. Um, getting to do uh, work with some incredibly creative and, um, and talented people. But then, you know, I made films about things like chess or steam trains and they're not necessarily subjects that I would be naturally drawn to or interested in making films about but when that happens you have to dig really deep to find out what's um, going to be engaging about a subject 
and you get absorbed into a, a, a world that you didn't know about. And it can be really incredible. You, you get to meet these, these people who are very passionate about a subject and you get to find out new things about it. it it's a whole new world that you go, get to go into. And I've really, I, I really enjoy making films about things that I knew nothing about and didn't think were necessarily interesting and actually turned out to be really interesting. Uh, it's it's um, it's more eye opening than making films about things that you already know a lot about. And I know from another program that you did during your time at the BBC, I think maybe that you got to work with David Attenborough, right? Yeah. So my first job at the BBC, straight out of doing a PhD, was on a series called State of the Planet, which was a David Attenborough series, and. Um, uh, I guess, you know, it was a lot of people, it takes them a long time to get their first job in TV and they might work on things they don't really want to do. My first job in television was literally my dream job of working on a, a huge series about the environment uh, and conservation with David Attenborough. So it was an incredibly enriching and lucky exp experience to, to get to do. Um, and I worked on a, a few other series with David since then, one was uh, called Attenborough and the Giant Dinosaur, where I went to Argentina to film the biggest dinosaur ever found being taken out of the ground. Amazing. Uh, and I also did a film with him about Richmond Park, which is his, his uh, nearest and often, he says, most favourite um, wild space. Oh, that's lovely. So you mentioned this was your first job in tv so if there was anyone looking to get their first job in tv is there any advice that you could give to them or what should they be looking to do now in order to help them do that when you speak to people who work in tv there's not a straightforward way to get in um, everyone seems to have a slightly different story some people go to college and study television production or filmmaking um, i didn't do that i learned on the job um, I, I saw my job advertised in New Scientist and The Guardian. That, that's where my job, I, I first was, became aware of my job. Um, that doesn't really happen anymore. Um, I think the thing to say is that every TV company or organisation has lots of young people trying to get a foot in the door. And uh, they all bring different potential skills. Um, there's two, th there's, there's at least two things. One is timing. Um, you just, you can get lucky that they are looking for someone and you happen to be around at the time asking for a job at the time. Uh, and the second is, well, unfortunately it's who you know, um, and that doesn't help anyone who doesn't already know people working <laughs> on TV. So the third thing is you, if you can be, if you can make yourself stand out from everyone else who's trying to get those first jobs and really get the attention of the people who might be able to, to help you out and give you a job, that's the best thing that you can do. And you can do that in a whole bunch of ways. And I'd say the best way is learn about filmmaking, make things. And then when you do grab someone's attention, say, look, I've made these. And you, if they're good and you've really put a lot of effort into them and you've learned how to make something half decent, you will already be in the top 1% of people knocking on the door of these people. So then you moved from 
working at these broadcast companies to now having your own agency, Blue Fire Films. So what made you want to take that leap? I've been at the BBC for about 11 years and I had also made uh, some films for them as an independent um, freelance filmmaker for a while. Um, the next step for me was going to be making another, spending another three years making a big series and traveling around the world. And I know that sounds amazing, obviously, and mm -hmm. it is amazing, um, but I'd already been doing that for more than a decade and um, it just felt like time to start doing something else. Um, I felt like I'd done television and actually I didn't feel excited about the next project that was going to come up. So it felt like it was, it was time to try to do something for myself, something a bit different. Um, and because I have a, a, a PhD or because I have a science background, um, it just felt like the natural step to be making science films outside of the television world. And now as part of that, you do a lot of teaching and coaching. Did that, did you start the teaching at the start of when you launched the company initially, or is that something you've become more passionate about now? Uh, I didn't start out with the idea of doing teaching. Um, and what happened was somebody who I shared an office with when I was doing my PhD got in touch with me after 20 years and said, um, she lives in, she's Portuguese. She lives in Portugal and she got in touch and said, look, I'm working at a place where we do, um, science courses of all kinds. And some of it's about statistics or ecological modeling or all kinds of things. And they said, we'd like to offer science filmmaking as, as a package that we do would you be interested in coming and teaching it in Portugal? So uh, off I went and I taught my first course there and it went down really well. And they asked me to come back and do it again the next year, which I did. And I just thought, well, so they were getting people from all over Europe um, and mainly in Portugal uh, to come to their course. But I just thought, well, I could do this. This is, you know, I could do this in my own country. This is a brilliant thing to do. And I really enjoyed it. And I got good feedback from people. So I thought, yeah, that's that's something I'm going to start to offer. I, I didn't or don't, and don't intend to stop making films because I love that. And I think also to teach a, a, a practical subject like filmmaking, you really need to be doing it uh, all the time to just keep on top of new trends, new technologies, and just to stay current. When it comes to making a science video, film, documentary, whatever you're trying to do, where where do you start? What are the core stages that you need to go through from beginning to very end? Filmmaking, whether you're making, you know, a, a massive 10 part documentary for Netflix or the BBC, or whether you're just making something really small, can be divided into three parts. So you've got production, which is where you actually go out and shoot material or, or acquire the material that you need to make your film. Uh, Pre-production is everything up to that point. So it's organizing, planning, writing, preparing. And then post-production is when you have the material that you've gone out and shot or found, if it's archive material, and you put your film together. So it's basically editing and all of the stages around editing. So sound mixing or, or color grading uh, and then uh, promoting your film. So those are the three stages. And in the pre-production stage, the way you would do it both professionally and I think um, just as an independent filmmaker 
you've got to get your story idea right before you you even stop making your film. So you need to know, for example, who the film is for, what's your audience, where you're going to show it, what messages you're trying to get across, and who's going to deliver them. If your idea isn't really tight and really clearly thought out right at the beginning, you're not going to make a very focused film. Write a good story. It's important to have a good story because people like to listen to stories. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's the way that most people absorb their information is through storytelling in one form or another. It will help to make it a more engaging film. Um, and ideally write a script if you can. And then um, you need to go and be prepared for your shoot. I would say for production, where you actually go out and film, you really need to understand your equipment, how it works. Um, you need to know how to shoot a sequence. You need to know how to interview people. And then for post-production, it helps to know what your story is going to be, again, uh, for your edit. Um, editing is about two things. It's about understanding how to drive the software. Uh, and it's about knowing how to tell a story using pictures. Um, and that comes mainly with experience. And then, of course, you can learn about things like animation. So you have your three stages. You go from pre-production, post-production, um, to then post-production. Which part would you say is the most crucial to make your film a success? Uh, well, you need all three of them for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I think where people let themselves down mainly is in pre-production is is they just start making something, and you know, like if you're cooking, if you just just get stuff out of the fridge and just cut it up and start cooking it without a thought of what you're doing, without some idea of where your endpoint is going to be, it's likely that it's going to be a bit messy. Now, sure, you can go into your fridge and find the bits that you need to make a recipe. And it could turn out quite well. And a lot of that is down to experience and knowing what works well together. And that's fine. But the more you can plan at the beginning, um, the better things are going to turn out at the end. Um, and so when I teach filmmaking courses, I start off by saying, look, I'm going to tell you a whole bunch of really obvious things. And none of it is rocket science. But actually, they, they I often get people say it was so illuminating because actually, instead of just launching into it, I, I'm going to really think about things before I set off. You know, it's it's about planning, um, planning and really thinking about what it is you're trying to do. Who's the audience? What messages do you want to get across? Who's going to deliver them? Um, how are you going to get people to see this film? Those sorts of things. Knowing that stuff before you pick up your camera is really important. I would say in, in production, knowing your equipment is really important because I think where people let themselves down is you know we can we can all pick up our phones and, and film things and they're pretty good they're pretty good ca cameras but often you see shots that are very overexposed or very underexposed or things are, are not in focus and that's down to people not really understanding their equipment you know if you're going to make a half decent film you should really get to know your equipment even if you just spend half a day playing with the different settings and go googling you know best settings for my particular camera it will really make things a lot better. One of the things for post-production is that you get an idea in your head of what your film's going to be. The job of an editor is to make the best film they can with the material that they've got. It's not necessary to make the film that you started out making because things don't go according to plan or you have pleasant surprises or you interview someone and they say things you didn't expect. Some people think, well, 
I took, it was really hard to get this shot. You know, it took me ages to set up and, and I had to get my scientists to walk through that 15 times before I got it quite right. It doesn't, none of that matters. None of that matters. If the shot doesn't fit in the film, it shouldn't go in the film. It doesn't matter how hard it was to get. You know, I've, I've made films where I, I dropped uh, an interview because it just wasn't working, even though it's a bit embarrassing to go back to the person and say, we didn't use you. You know, they might say, oh, I was fa I'm famous. It doesn't matter. If it's not the right thing for the film, you drop it. You make the best film you can in the edit. It's hard to let go of the, the material that you went to make. It's one of the reasons why you hire an editor rather than doing the editing yourself, <laughs> if you can. Yeah. One of the reasons, you, if you can, hire an editor for yourself is because they won't be precious about some of uh, what you went through to get the material. They, they will just look through the material and try and create the best story. So for you as the, the camera operator, how, how do you learn to kind of let go of something like that that you would have spent so much time on and really wanted to get? I think because I've sat through enough edits to know, <laughs> to know that you need to let go of things that you're precious about. The greatest classroom for a filmmaker is, is sitting in the edit because that's where you learn why things work and why things don't work. And it's where you learn about mistakes that you've made during the shoot that, you know, something won't cut together because you didn't do it quite right and you, you won't do it next time in the same way you'll do it differently. And you learn that in the edit. When you work in television, one of the biggest problems is that you've got, um, it, as an assistant producer who's learning how to become a producer, is you often will go on shoot and you'll come back with material and it'll go into the edit. But unless you get to sit in the edit and sit next to the editor who says, this isn't, this is really difficult to edit. And you, you try to find out why that won't work together, why those shots don't go together what you didn't get on the day, you won't learn. And so editing material is where you learn why your shoot didn't go according to plan and how not to do it that way next time. So for someone who might be a beginner, how how would they try to replicate that? Is it more about sharing it with their peers and seeing what they think? Or do they try and maybe get a mentor who is an editor or has experience editing and try to learn with them that way? I, I mean, those those are, are definitely um, things to do. So um, I would say the first thing is if you can't find someone else is practice by shooting things, shooting sequences, shooting interviews, and then go and cut that material together. Does it, does it cut well? If it doesn't, then what would you do differently next time? That's the first thing I would say is practice. Practice making mistakes in um, your outside of the films that are important. You know, if you're going to go and interview a professor who doesn't have a lot of time, you wouldn't arrive and say, no, I'm really sorry, I don't know how the camera works. You would have practiced it beforehand. And I guess that's what I mean. So sit with an editor who's more experienced than you and say, I've shot this material. Would you, know, would you show me how it can cut together? Most editors probably won't have the time. Real editors mm. won't have the time to do that. But certainly editing something together or uh, getting someone to help you edit something together and then showing it to someone else and saying, what do you think of this? Tell me, you know, give me some critique on it. Tell me what's working and what's not working and will help you. Because sometimes when you've done it all yourself, you become a bit too close to the material. It becomes mm -hmm. very hard to see what's working and what's not working. And even with 25 years experience, that's true. I mean, if I make something, I'll show it to someone else and say, look, what do you think? And they don't have to be a filmmaker. They can 
you know, we all watch TV, we all watch movies, so we all have an opinion. So make something, shoot it, cut it together as a first draft and show it to someone and say, is this working for you? Why and why not? And their feedback is, is incredibly valuable. It doesn't matter how much experience they have as a filmmaker. They have an opinion because they are your potential audience. But, but actually, going back to the point you were making before about working with other people, filmmaking on your own is really hard. And one of the most rewarding things about working in television is the collaborative nature of filmmaking that happens there. Because someone will say, why don't we do it this way? And if you listen to them, which you should do, um, <laughs> they will often tell you things or suggest things that you couldn't have thought of yourself. And, it's a, and they'll, they'll make you look good. So... Um, collaborate if you can get other get work with other people if you can because you'll be surprised uh, filmmaking is a one problem solving exercise after another and when it comes to problem solving more heads are, are better than one for sure so i think the way my sort of personality i might be a little anxious or shy maybe to ask these academics and professors who have very little time um to kind of repeat doing something or can we try it another different way so are there any kind of tips you can share with people who might feel like that to make sure they get everything that they need without feeling that they're annoying people for asking for the same thing over and over again filmmaking is um, about a lot of different skills and one of the most important skills is people skills interpersonal skills mm -hmm. um, I think that people don't mind they don't mind doing repeating something four times, which is often what you do, um, if they understand it's for the benefit of making the film good. So one of the things that I find that scientists really like when I'm making films with them is they like knowing that I'm confident about what I'm doing because they know that it's going to be a better product in the end, a better result mm -hmm. of the film. So if I explain to them, this is how you do it, and it means that I can cut a sequence together, um, then um, they don't mind repeating something, I find. So it's that interpersonal skills thing. Um, and you just have to ask. Um, I find people don't mind doing it several times. I, I really do. But I think the, se the second way is that if you don't ask them, if you don't feel you can ask them to do that, and then you go into your edit and you realise your sequence won't cut together because you haven't asked them to do repeat something four times, you jolly well remember to do it next time because you don't want <laughs> to go back into your edit with not having the material you want. And in a way, that's, I mean, I i was a little bit like that when I started at the BBC and you do not want to come home from a shoot, which might cost quite a lot of money, um, without the material that you need to cut the sequence together. You, you can't do that because your career would just become, you know, untenable. So you learn, I've just got to come home with what I need, therefore I have to ask for what I need. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and you get better at it yeah I guess it's just weighing up the sort of risk and reward because you might you might be really anxious and think oh I'm going to damage my relationship with this person but if you then deliver a film that isn't what they want because you were too afraid to do that then that's probably more damaging most scientists are logical people and if you explain to them why you're doing it this way I think most of them you know will absorb that logic and say yeah okay that sounds like the right way to do it what they don't like, and one of the biggest mistakes you can make, is if you're working with someone, a contributor, um, and you just ask them to do things and you don't explain why, 
people want to know why they're, do, they're being asked to do something. It's a, you know, the filmmaking process might be a mystery to them. And so um, you have to take them along on your journey and say, look, this is why we're doing what we're doing. Um, you know, you'd have to tell them how much time this might take, you know, uh, and so that they, they're not sprung surprises. So if you say to them, this interview will take up to an hour um, and I need half an hour to set up before the interview. And then after that, we need um, two hours in the lab for me to get all the shots that will go with the interview. And um, I'm going to ask you to repeat doing the experiment four times, if that's okay. Um, then, then they're prepared for it and they know that that's how films are made. And actually, you'd be surprised how many people have maybe had to do it before, especially if, you know, if they're a bit more senior than they've had to do it before. Um, just, just don't spring a surprise on them. It's about communication. One of the greatest skills you can have as a filmmaker is good communication skills. Let people know what you expect, what you're doing, um, how you're going to do it, how long it will take. So I wanted to ask about um, style as a creator. How, how did you develop your style as a filmmaker and what sort of things might contribute to someone's video style? The truth of the matter is we're all influenced by the people um, that we've worked with and the types of film that we watched and, and liked. You know, I was influenced by some of the nature documentaries I've watched because I worked on them for a very long time. And before that, I liked them for a very long time. Um, but there's a lot of other documentary styles that I really like. Um, my style tends to be quite based on a television model. You sit down, people down with an interview and they're looking just off screen at the interviewee. You cut to sequences which are shot in, the, in a traditional sort of way. And you don't have to make documentaries that way. You don't have to make your films that way at all. You can shoot it on your phone by doing a selfie, walking around your lab and explaining things. And that's not wrong. And it could be really engaging if, if you bring your, you know, a good personality and uh, presenting style to it. There's no right and wrong way to do it. But I think watch and learn. I mean, we all watch TV or films and we watch things on social media. And I think you are inadvertently liking things and without knowing why you're liking them. I think one of the things you can do is to start to pay more attention to what you like and why you like it. Um, we are all copying people who've gone before us and making slight changes. I think there's, instead of saying there's nothing wrong with that, I think it's actually a really positive thing. Watch what other people do. Note the films that you like and sort of see why you like them and, and copy styles, copy, copy what other people are doing if you like it. Um, it's, it's a really positive thing to do. When you are then on set recording, obviously the footage is really important to tell the story, but what about other things like audio quality, lighting, maybe the background or the scene that everything's set within? How important are they for a successful video? You mentioned audio quality. I mean, it, it's really the most commonly overlooked and the most important thing that people need to do to make their films good. I think it's fair to say that audio quality is as important as video quality, if not more important. People can forgive something that's not brilliantly shot, but if it sounds awful, they will leave. They'll stop watching the film. They can't hear what's being said properly. So good quality audio is incredibly important. And it's, in a, in a way, one of the most important things, you know, inexperienced filmmakers can spend their time getting better at. And it doesn't, it's not very hard. Um, good quality microphones, microphones near the subject um, that's making the noise in, or the speaker, in other words, um, are the first two things to do. Uh, 
Um, and then, you know, while, you, while you're mixing your film in your edit, make sure that you can hear what people are saying clearly, that music isn't drowning people out. So it's those sorts of things. Uh, but, but really focusing on audio from the very beginning is a, a very important thing to be doing for your films. And if we touch on um, equipment briefly, what would you recommend for a beginner wanting to try out making videos? Like, do you really need lights, microphones, tripods, etc.? No, you don't need anything special, really. You just need to learn how your equipment works. Um, and then you can start adding things in if you want to. Um, so, you know, there's no point in having a fancy equipment if you're not getting it in focus or you're making it too bright, you know, your shots are overexposed. There's no point in using fancy equipment uh, until you know some of the really basic things like that. Um, you don't need a tripod if, you know, we've all seen films that are shot and they're slightly wobbly and we're all fine with that. Um, tripods are great for some things and you don't have to have them. I use them quite a lot, but I also shoot lots of things without them. Um, you don't need lots of lenses, but they certainly give you a huge, um, a huge palette of um, different shot options and, and ways of shooting than if you shot just on your phone. Um, lights, yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of time to learn how to use lights to light a scene. But um, having said that, uh, if what you're filming is too dark, stick some lights, you know, turn on the, on the room lights or open, you know, open the curtains mm -hmm. or, uh, or just stick a desk lamp on or whatever it might be, just get some more light into the room. Um, you know, so there's simple and there's complicated things with everything. You know, there's so much equipment that you can use and you don't need it all. But every little bit of equipment there is can be used to make films better. Um, get to know the equipment that you have available to you. Um, borrow things. If you work for a university, there will be likely be equipment that you can borrow and try out or, or use regularly. Um, or you might have a friend who's got a, a different piece of equipment that you can use so don't feel that you need to be bound by equipment because you don't um, whatever equipment you've got available to you get to know the equipment get to know how it works and try it out and practice with it that, that's that's more important with all of your years of experience are there some key pieces of kit now that you just can't live without my my standard kit would be a tripod a camera with several lenses uh, headphones, and then two different types of microphone. I can make a film with uh, just a camera, a microphone, and one lens, of course, and that's it. Um, I think it really depends on the situation. But I would say I, I like I like having a decent camera, um, and I definitely will always have decent microphones with me. Um, that's absolutely essential. I wouldn't try doing something without a decent microphone. Um, I would rather shoot on an iPhone and have a decent microphone than shoot with my digital SLR with just the onboard camera microphone on the camera. What, um, what microphones would you recommend? So with equipment, it's all, there's, there's the adage, you get what you pay for. And I think that's fair. Um, Having said that, with a microphone, you don't need to buy the professional level microphones necessarily. Um, so there's a couple of companies, or there's at least three companies that are well known. Rode is the really well known one. Sennheiser is also very well known, and Sony. They all make great microphones. 
they are expensive. So you don't need that. With almost every piece of equipment that you can think of for filming, there will be a cheaper version, often Chinese made and really pretty good um, that you can get, which isn't as good as the branded names, but is almost as good and, and might be a third of the price, you know, in some cases. So uh, I would, what I always do with equipment, and again, it's because equipment changes every year. I would, if I'm thinking about buying something like a microphone, I would Google best microphone for you know, podcasting or best microphone for um, video interviews 2021. Uh, and I would read the reviews. When it comes to microphones, there's two that I would have in my kit when I'm out on a shoot. One's called a directional microphone or, or sometimes called a gun mic. It's the, it's the microphone, you, you know, a, a reporter would have hold, held in their hand or you would see on the top of the camera. And so that's really important to have. Um, but it's also important to know that if you're far away from the thing that's making the noise you're trying to record, you need to get that microphone closer. So I wouldn't just have it sat on the top of my camera. I would have the option with a long cable and hopefully someone who can help me um, <laughs> to, to get that microphone closer to the person to the person speaking or whatever's making the noise, if possible. I would also have what some people call a clip-on mic or uh, it's also called a tie mic because it traditionally clipped onto people's ties uh, and then uh, but it's also known technically as lavalier or lav lav mic and that's just sometimes it's radio uh, uh it's plugged into your camera via radio so they wear it as a radio pack they can walk around the, your presenter or your um contributor can walk around talking and then that goes straight into your camera via radio that's more expensive um or you can have a clip-on microphone that's got a very long cable um, that still plugs into your your camera or a set or a handheld recorder or your phone or whatever it might be. So there's two, those two types of microphone that are worth looking at. Um, I use both for safety, but you, you don't need to use both. Partly it's about getting used to your own way of working. Um, if you can borrow one or the other and just get used to it, that's a good idea. Um, a clip on mic with a long cable can be as little as sort of 20 pounds. So it's, it's worth, it's worth going down that route as a first measure for sure. And you mentioned kind of having a backup almost. Would you recommend having two audio sources of the same thing when you're shooting? If you can, yeah. If, but but I, I recognise that people often can't. I do it because I've had a few situations over the years where I had a, an equipment malfunction and I, I can't do that. You know, people pay me to <laughs> deliver high-quality um, films for them. And if something goes wrong you have to figure out how to solve that on the spot and um so for me i i will often plug a microphone into the back of my camera uh, but then i might also have with me a handheld recorder or and sometimes i even have two handheld recorders with me depending on what the setup is but i do that and then sometimes radio mics can end up they they can be temperamental so i have you know, a, a clip-on mic with a long cable with me. Uh, I mean, all of this is expensive, um, but I do it because it gets me out of trouble if something goes wrong. W when it comes to audio, you should be always listening on your headphones as well so that you really know whether there's a problem. So, for example, a microphone might be battery-powered. Radio mics are battery-powered often. Um, what if those batteries go halfway through an interview? If you're not listening on your headphones, you won't know. So you need to be monitoring 
I mean, there's so much to think about when you're filmmaking. Mm, this um, is why you have a team. <laughs> this is why you have a team. You know, if you're if you're interviewing someone and you've got a radio, uh, you've got a, a sound recordist, they will tap you on the shoulder and say, "I've got a, I've got a." There was a, a problem with that last clip. It means you don't have to think about it yourself. You're not monitoring all that stuff. Someone will do that for you. Uh, but if you can't have someone, um, you have to learn how to do all of these things. You know, you're doing five or six jobs at once. And that's the hard thing about solo filmmaking is is being sound recorders, camera operator, director, producer, you know, lunch, <laughs> caterer, <laughs> uh, all of those sorts of things. You know, you, you have you have a lot of different responsibilities and it's hard. So if you are trying to do all of those things, what things do you need to be thinking about if you had your producer head on or your director head on? It's a really good question. Uh, there are different roles on a film set. Uh, before you actually go out filming, you should walk through your filming day that is going to come with each different hat on to anticipate all of the problems and schedule in time to make sure everything happens. As the producer, you're, you have ultimate responsibility for the film. That's what the job as the producer is. You know, have you thought about safety? Have you thought about insurance? Have you thought about how other people are going to, do, does everyone know where to meet? Um, does everyone have each other's phone numbers? Um, do you have permission to shoot in this location? You need to walk all that through as a producer. Yeah, you, that's the ultimate responsibility. Director, what shots do I need? You know, do I have a list of all the shots I need to get? Do I have a list of all the questions I need to ask? Um, the uh, sound recordist, you know, do I have all my sound equipment, obviously, but um, mm -hmm. do I know how my equipment works? Do I, um, do I, you know, know if there's a quiet location for the interview? Do I, you know, if I'm using a radio microphone, am I, is the radio channel that it broadcasts on, is that, you know, going to interrupt with anyone else's frequency? I mean, it's a very minor thing. I don't expect many people <laughs> to be experiencing that, but that is, you know, I have to think about that. Um, uh, you know, your job as the producer, I guess, is to make sure that everyone's fed, will have a break at, uh, during the day or, you know, knows has a parking space allocated you know all those things there's a lot of things to think about so i've filmed a couple of interviews now with um scientists talking to camera and these are people that can perfectly explain to me their research if you bump into them in the lunch queue or even if i've set up the camera and i'm just chatting to them before i even press record but then as soon as i click that little red button they just completely go to pot and struggle to get their words out. So what would you advise for people um, to tell whoever they're interviewing to make their interviewee feel more at ease and ideally forget that the camera is on and rolling? This is, in a way, the million-dollar question for interviewing people for science. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, um, I, there's a few things that I've learned over the years. I think the first thing is you can improve someone's performance by maybe 15% and not much more than that. Um, I think that's the first thing to say. So if someone starts off and it's not going very well, the truth of the matter is it probably won't get brilliant. <laughs> and so you have to decide, <laughs> is this good enough or not? Um, I think the second thing is that person can make or break your film. And so, as you say, you don't necessarily know if they're the right person until you turn the camera on because that, Turning a, for some reason, interviewing someone on camera can turn people into jelly. 
I don't know why. Mm -hmm. And there's, that's not a criticism of people. It's, you know, some people, some people are good at it and some people are not good at it. It's important to get the right person to be interviewed for your film. And the right person is not necessarily the world expert on something. It's the person who is able to explain things in, in a way that is clear and concise. Um, and also they come across as an expert who is likable. These are really important, strangely important things because an expert who's a world expert on something, but is not very likable on camera is a disaster for your film mm -hmm. or who mumbles or who's not very clear at explaining, even if you do like them, it's a disaster for your film. So there's, you need to choose the right person who is charismatic in some way, is, a, is trustworthy and is a good explainer. And it's hard to find. And it's even worth considering if you interview someone and they just, it's not a great interview. It's even worth considering dropping them from the film and finding someone else who can do a better job of it. However, um, you asked me how, what ways to get a good performance out of someone who's sitting there and is feeling a bit nervous. I would say you need to talk to them and be a people person. You need to say, look, I understand that the camera makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable and I, I totally get that. So let's make sure um, you feel uh, as comfortable as possible. Um, you need to make sure that they know that they can have as many goes at this as possible. It's not Newsnight. It's not Jeremy Paxman or whoever is doing it nowadays. You're not trying to trip them up. You all want the best thing, the best performance out of them. Let them know, for example, that they shouldn't speak too quickly, um, that they can stop and start when they want to. We can, you don't have, they don't have to get it all right in one go. You can edit it um, to some extent um, to use simple language. Often the first two answers that people give won't be very good. Um, and then you can go back and do them again at the end when they've warmed up a bit and they've forgotten a little bit about the camera. Mm. Um, you can, um, you must tell them that they're doing well or tell them, you know, give them positive encouragement because that will help them to, people feel nervous. Am I doing a good job? And if you don't tell them, then that nervousness doesn't go away. So say that was a really good answer. I really liked it. That was great for tone and great for duration. Maybe use a few less technical words next time, but otherwise I thought it was really good. Or could we have another go? I, I did like that answer. And I'd like to use that bit of it, but could we try again, but start first by talking about something else. So help them, help people along because it will help them with, feel confident. Uh, and if they think you're being confident and, and you know what you're doing, it will make them feel more comfortable as well. Uh, but be a people person, get to read people, uh, look at how they're feeling. If they feel uncomfortable, just say some words of encouragement. But my experience is 15%, maybe 20% improvement in performances, but, uh, but uh, not much more than that. <laughs> so this kind of the, the magical person that you really want on your film, the charismatic person, how, how do you find them in advance? Like, is there anything you can ask in your preparation stage that might help you find that person? Often they've done it before uh, and you can see that they've done it before. Uh, you might see a film of them having done an interview and they come across well or they don't. You can ask around, you can ask people, you know, who's a good speaker. People can be professors who give lectures that are really good all the time and as soon as the camera gets turned on they, they, they go all strange mm -hmm. and um, so it can be hard to know. And sometimes you don't have a choice as to who you get. You just, you're making a film with a particular person. So you have to work with them. Yeah. I often find that if a film is longer than two minutes, it's good to have a second person in the film anyway, because people like more than one voice, you know, um, that variety makes films feel more rich. 
And it can turn out that the second person, even though they may be a bit more junior, is a better on-screen presence and they end up carrying the film. Um, but whereas you still need to have maybe Professor so-and-so who's really well-known and gave you their time, um, but they weren't as good. And they could say one or two things, but the other person might turn out to be the, the person who carries it. Having a second person in your film can give you um, diversity, but it can also save your neck when it comes to um, editing because one of them was just better than the other. It's not an option for everyone, but it's worth considering. Most of the videos you make and anyone listening to this are probably going to make is to share scientific discoveries or scientific information. How do you balance getting that scientific information and the factual detail into a film while still making sure it is telling that story and it's engaging for an audience? The first thing to remember is that science films are not the same as science papers. They're they're designed for totally different purposes. They're not taking the place of one another. So there's a place for the scientific paper. Of course there is. It's where all the information is. It's where all the background information about how the experiment was carried out, um, details about findings. Scientific films don't don't do the same thing. You need to make science films that get across maybe two or three points. Um, They're not full of detail. They're not full of all of the background information about the experiment. Unless, of course, your your film is how do you run a, you know, electrolysis gel Mm -hmm. or how do you do a titration, you know, whatever. But if it's about the findings from our research, you need to choose two or three things that you want the audience to take home. And you need to keep them engaged and you need to be a good storyteller and make it interesting and informative because if you don't, people will just turn off. They're used to turning videos off and they'll do that. So I think it's really important to um, not assume the same things. Um, keep it lighthearted. Uh, keep the language simple. Um, ideally have someone that is engaging as the front person of the film. Um, it needs a, 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 a start, a middle and an end because that's what stories have. Mm-hmm. And you need to think about ways of explaining what you're trying to explain, which is engaging and not turning people off. Given the whole video creation process then from start to finish, what would your three, say, top tips be? If I was going to say three things, I would say know your audience for this film, know who they are and make sure you're making the film for them. Don't just say this is for the general public. Be targeted with with. Uh, how you're making your film and who it's for. Get to know your equipment well so that it's almost second nature because there's so much to think about while you're filming that you can't stop in the middle of a, of a shoot and say, ooh, I, I don't really know how this bit of equipment works. You, need to, you, should, you should get to know it really well. I'd say the final thing is at every stage of your filmmaking process, you should test your plan and your your scripts or your edits or whatever it is that you're making, you should test them out and ask for people's opinions and listen to what they say. You don't have to change anything because of what someone said, but it's really worth listening, especially if they're a potential target audience for for the film you're making. Don't just make something and never ask during the whole filmmaking journey, never ask anyone whether you you know they like what you're doing or they even understand what it is that's going on. The worst thing you can do is just make your film totally in an isolated bubble and then spring it on the world thinking it will be really clear. Because actually, if you can 
ask people along the way, what do you think of this? This, what do you think of this script? What do you think of these shots? What do you think of this um, first edit or second edit? Does it make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Get that feedback along the way from people, people you trust, because by doing so, your film will end up being a lot stronger. That's great advice. What is the best thing for you then about being a science filmmaker? I love being able to learn about lots of research without having to spend years and years just looking at one particular question. Mm -hmm. um, I meet lots of really amazing people. I find out, you know, I get to stay current in science, even though I'm not a scientist anymore. And I still get to do it in a creative way. And I, I love that. It's really, um, really rewarding. So on my blog, I used to do some interviews with scientists called a scientist in the spotlight for anyone who's listening to this who has read my blog before and at the end of every interview I asked everyone the same question and I thought it might just be nice to thread that through into these podcast interviews as well so I love to travel when we can do of course um, and I'm sure your career has taken you to many places across the globe so my final question to round this interview off is where should I be traveling to on my next adventure? So where would you recommend and why? I think where amazing places to travel to. I mean, there are, it depends what, you, what you're looking <laughs> for. Um, you know, I, right now is not the time to go to Ethiopia, but Ethiopia is a totally amazing place mm. to visit. Um, you know, there's nothing, there's no, nothing like a trip to New Guinea for, for being thrown into a world that is very different from what you're used to. But it's, it's really amazing. What's been your, your favourite? You know, getting to go to Easter Island with David Attenborough was a, was a real highlight of, wow. my, of my career. Um, no wildlife there, but, uh, but, uh, but really mind blowing experience. Fabulous. I will book my plane to east island when we when we can next go anywhere <laughs> um fabulous so thank you so much for your time this morning and it's fabulous answers thank you so much it's been really good speaking to you and cut to the diy section of the podcast this is a section where i share with you an exercise or tool that you can act on right now after this episode has finished and improve your psychom confidence straight away. The tool for today's episode is a handy little checklist for each stage of the video production process. It is something you can keep printing out again and again and again for each and every video that you do to make sure that you are prepared as you can be before filming making sure you get everything when you are filming and the key things you need to look for when you're editing afterwards. All of that together will hopefully help you create the best videos that you can. And aside from that, another useful tool to have in your Psycom toolkit is a video buddy. Someone who can look over scripts, look through your footage and plans, someone to watch your first cut of a video, someone who will give you some feedback. It is so, so easy to get tunnel vision when you're making your own videos. I haven't made too many so far, but from the little experience I have, I can tell you that it's really hard to let go of things sometimes. 
So find that video buddy who can cast an eye over what you're working on and can help you to think about things in a different way or tell the story from a different angle or make sure you explain every piece of jargon that might have appeared in your script. If you are looking for even more support to help improve your science filmmaking skills, George is running his filmmaking courses and he has just announced the first in-person training since the pandemic started. Head to bluefirefilms.com forward slash training for all the details. There are online courses in June, August and September 2021. There is an in-person course near Bristol in the UK in July 2021. This is the course I went on. It's three days but I cannot tell you how much of a great investment that it was. I learned so, so much and met some wonderful other people doing similar things. There is also a training course available in Portugal in October 2021 as well. And of course, there are bespoke options too. So get in touch with George if you want to learn even more from him. And I really think you should. Those are just the course dates already set as I'm preparing for this episode in May of 2021. But do make sure to check out the bluefirefilms.com website for future dates. I'm pretty sure that George does them on a rotating basis. Don't know whether he's going to continue the online versions after the pandemic, but his website will give you all the details that you need. You can find George at Blue Fire Films on most social media platforms. So if you have any science video needs or questions, reach out there too. And that's a wrap on this episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you did and found it helpful, I would love it if you could rate and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review if you wish, as it helps others to find the podcast too. All transcripts, show notes and resources can be found on my website at sofetalkscience.com forward slash toolkit. And if you want to discuss anything you've heard in this episode, then please feel free to send me a DM on Instagram. I'm at sof.talks.science or you can follow the pod too at Psycom Toolkit. And I will see you then in the next episode. Bye.